Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsch, and this is episode 18 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everybody's having a good week out there. Going to keep this entry short because the conversation about the movie this week ran a little long and I like to keep my episodes around a certain length and also because I have a very noisy water filter that's about to kick in and create ridiculous background noise. So I better talk quick. Uh, One point of interest that I want to bring up before I get to introducing the actual interview is uh, a cameo appearance I've put in on another podcast. This isn't me appearing and talking about movies. Instead, this is an audio drama called Scared Shirtless, and I recorded a role kind of filling in at the last minute for a part that I guess had gone vacant, and I was able to provide the sound that kind of matched the previous actor and got to fill in. So Scared Shirtless episode 13 features yours truly as Mr. Lead, Uh, Kind of a role that I hope I get to keep doing. My joking post on Facebook was that I can really relate now to Misha Collins when he took over the role of Castiel on Supernatural. Uh, He did it in a very low register voice, thinking that it was a short-term engagement, and he ended up becoming a series regular and carrying on the part for multiple seasons, doing this in a voice that made him a little uncomfortable. And I can kind of relate to that because Mr. Led speaks with kind of a low, uh, the description was a low, reedy voice, and even just doing it for a brief period of time for my appearance in the episode was a little taxing. So it was fun though. And I really enjoyed doing that. It's not an aspect of podcasting that I've gotten into, but I really enjoyed doing an audio drama and who knows, maybe I'll reappear as Mr. Lead and maybe I'll be able to be on some other podcasts doing that kind of thing as well. So I'm going to skip Friday inquiry for this week, but of course you can always catch my Friday inquiry that I put up on social media on Fridays, go figure, uh, at have not seen this on Twitter or have not seen this podcast on Facebook where I ask a question inspired by that week's episode. So this week, the movie is The Rules of Attraction from 2002, and it's brought to us by director-producer Sean Preston. And I encourage you to go check out his work at the link in the show notes. We also talk about it in the podcast as well as his podcast, which is kind of an audio drama. Uh, It's produced short story which is is really kind of a fascinating thing as well. Again, another venue that I haven't taken with podcasting. I will provide a trigger warning for this week's movie, kind of like I did last week. Something you need to be aware of with the rules of attraction. It's something we talk about in the episode that it is advertised as a romance movie or a comedy, and it really is not either of those things. This is a dark movie as evidenced by the fact that within the first 10 minutes of the movie, there is a rape scene. It is not violent, but it is an act of rape. It's an kind of, I guess, a form of date rape. And then there is an act of violence against someone as an act of homophobia. Needless to say, the first 10 minutes of this movie are rough to watch. And it is a topic that Sean and I talk about in the episode Despite the fact that the movie starts off rough and is a very dark movie, it was not what I was expecting, we have a wonderful conversation about this film. So the trigger warning is about the movie. If that's not sounding like something you're interested in, I would not encourage you to watch the film. But 
I would encourage you to listen to our conversation either way, because I think Sean brings a really interesting perspective as to those elements of the film, as well as the film overall. And we have a wonderful conversation about it. So here we go with 2002's The Rules of Attraction. So the emails and such you sent me, you're a producer and director, right? Yep. That's right. I'm mainly a director, writer, director, but um, I produce as well sometimes. All right. So I have a script I want you to check out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How, how true is that cliche? About sending scripts? I mean, well, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of producers. So um, the kind that will find financing for your script is a... Uh, a rare and sought after sort. Um, that's not the kind that I am, but um, I do send. I mean, I, I pitch stuff to producers um, quite a bit and and development people. Um, although the kinds that want to go out, and especially with with independent movies, um, you know, there's a certain role that they go and try to find financing and um, and that sort of thing, and it, that's a tough thing to do, obviously, trying to find the money. And uh, they can only, you know, take on a certain amount of projects at a time. And yeah, that sort of thing. The last time I met with one of those, uh, my the thing I was pitching was a little too high budget for him. He wanted to keep things like one location, pretty low budget, come in under $2 million. Or, um, but mine was way, way more ambitious. <laughs> It's not necessarily a bad problem to have, but I guess it is a, a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I just figured it might as well go big, go big with it. So how did you get your start on this path? Hollywood's a rough game and high stakes kind of game, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a very tough game. I started um, after college. Actually, I was living in New York and um, my roommate had got me a job as a production assistant on a commercial and I, I had always wanted to go to film school, but I had gone, I'd studied psychology, social psychology, actually, in college instead. I just didn't think that filmmaking was a realistic, you know, probability for me. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I didn't know any filmmakers or, or really anything about the business. So I studied something else, but I was living in New York and they, I got a job as a production assistant, which basically meant, I remember the, it was a Pillsbury commercial and my job that day was to, take the uh, completed croissant, breakfast croissant rolls or whatever they were, and bring them from the person who was cooking them to set, like, and just run back and forth. And I just loved it for whatever reason. I was young. And, you know, so I worked as a production assistant for a couple of years, which mainly involves taking out trash, driving stuff around town, driving a truck, uh, getting coffee, getting snacks for everybody. And they're super long days, like 16 hour days. But I was, yeah, I was in my 20s and I just had a blast and I just thought it was for me. Like, I just love the excitement of cameras rolling and the magic really. And um, it's intense. So I just decided to, to pursue it. And I, from there, I became an art department person, which is who does the sets and props and such. So I became an art department assistant and then a set dresser and a props person, and then eventually an art director and production designer and um, did that for a few years and then got a break to start directing um, because 
a company that I was doing production design with, I, I had we were doing these things that were sort of like uh, like live action in camera animations, and I was creating all of that, and they were a hit, and they were popular, and and they were getting more ordered than they had directors to direct, and so that's sort of how I got my start directing, and I've been directing now for about five or six years. See, when I when I got out of high school, my goal was my ambition, I guess I should say, was to be an actor. And mm-hmm. the more I looked into that, it just felt too high stakes for me as far as security. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I and I did at one point start looking at, you know, getting into special effects design and mm-hmm. and, and directing. And I just finally decided that I can do all the storytelling I want to do with community theater or yeah. online. Yeah. And there was no need to, you know, risk my my life and, and livelihood yeah. by going there. So I I have utmost admiration for those who go and 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 take the attempt and uh, especially for those who make it. But uh well, you know, I, and to that point, I when I started it was 2006, I think I started in film or 2007ish. Um so since then things have changed a whole lot in the industry and and media distribution and when young people now are saying hey I want to be a filmmaker and how do I get a you know a production assistant job actually on Reddit there's a lot of that in in like film industry subreddits people coming in and wanting to get a job um as an assistant or intern but I always say just like start a YouTube channel you know it, it's you can do it from anywhere you can do anything it's a lot and it, and if you're talented and you've got something to say, uh, there will be people who want to hear it and there'll be people who want to see it and and do that. And like right now, for example, I'm taking a year off. I got a little burnt out on directing. I was I was working a lot and and I, you know, made my scripted narrative podcast that's sort of like a horror sci-fi podcast that I can just have complete creative control over and release it. And um it's been getting a good response and uh I, I enjoy it and it's more fun for me than, you know, I usually direct commercial or branded content or um, sometimes music video and music doc, but um, even those are very stressful and the creative control is a lot less than you would think. So uh, last question before we kind of jump into the movie here, sure. you said you started around 2006. So I'm yep. going to guess you were in your 20s. That's right. That time? Okay. I'm 40. Yeah, I'm 41 now. So I was in my mid 20s, I believe. Yeah. Mid I, I always 20s. try to find a, a light way to dance around that question. But oh. at the same time, <laughs> yeah, especially with a movie like the one you've picked, I kind of feel like age of the viewer is a factor as well. I'm sure we will discuss here in a few minutes. Oh, for sure. Because there's a lot of cultural references and pop cultural references in that movie that um, people of my age, it will, they will hit especially hard. So we're talking about the rules of attraction today from 2002 uh, written and directed by Roger Avery based on the novel by Brett Easton Ellis starring James Vanderbeek, Ian Summerhalder, Shannon Sossaman, Jessica Biel, and Kit Pardue. From the corrupt minds that brought you Pulp Fiction and American Psycho. So I pretend to be a vampire. Search for this night's prey. Who will it be? What are the rules of attraction? I think I'm in love with this girl. She's sweet, pure, innocent. She's a virgin. Say what you want. Abstinence is 100% safe, which is less of a percentage than... Whatever, I don't care, I don't major in math. It's totally blank. 
Typical. Do what you feel. It might be fun. You know you want it. You're drinking. Drunk. <laughs> I'm drunk. Tonight's the night. Who's a lucky boy? Sean Bateman. He's a dealer. <laughs> Call security. Get what you deserve. Don't stomp, don't stomp, don't stomp. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh. <laughs> Take it to kicking in. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh. Gross, dude. I only did it with her because I'm in love with you. From the novel by Brett Easton Ellis. Where's my money? He's got it. You bring me my cash! I want to know you. What does that mean? Nobody knows anyone else. She's not ever going to want to see you again. You crazy? Ah! Define crazy. Deal with it. So what do you think? What do I think? Rock and roll. The rules of attraction. Your game, right? So... How do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? How do you sell them on wanting to go home and watch this movie? Well, I'll I'll definitely lead with the word dark. Um, it certainly <laughs> is. And a funny an- anecdote about it is that when the movie was released, it uh, was marketed like a teen comedy, like an upbeat, fun teen comedy. And that's the way that the posters made it look in the DVD box. You know, it stars James Vanderbeek, who, of course, was um, Dawson from Dawson's Creek. And also Jessica Biel and Kate Bosworth were very sort of teeny bopper kind of stars. So it, it gave the, a lot of people the wrong impression. And they went into the movie theater sort of thinking it was going to be that and then ended up uh, distraught and... Um, I wouldn't say disappointed, but like disturbed because people who like this movie, you know, you sort of have to have an appetite for dark um, sorts of entertainment and not everybody does. There's a lot of people that want entertainment to be sort of fluffy or they want the darkness to be contained in a normal form, like a, you know, a horror movie form or a sci-fi form, but something like this that is more psychologically dark um, is hard for some people. But for me personally, I love it. I relish this kind of thing. Okay. So how do you sell them on that? Because that's, I mean, that's a great bit of context. And and actually, before you answer that, let me, let me say, I I fell prey to that because when this movie came out, uh, I was working as a film critic when it came out. I didn't end up seeing it because it was covered by somebody else for the site. Right. And my only exposure to it up until you picked this movie was that it was a comedy. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down expecting to watch a comedy and it is yeah. a vastly different movie than a comedy. <laughs> and it is still listed on IMDb and the streaming service I used a- as a comedy and as a romance and as a drama. And it is not really a comedy and not really romantic. So I I definitely agree with that. You know what, what you were saying It, it definitely is not setting the right expectation for the viewer. If you call it that. Yeah, I think I would call it like a dark coming of age drama, but a huge selling point is the pop cultural references. So people who enjoy, yeah, pop culture references or even satire. I mean, the Simpsons, 
to a large degree is filled with pop cultural references. And that's part of the draw of that. I try to sell it by just describing the scene where Fred Savage from the Wonder Years is doing heroin, which I think um, sums up. It's so disturbing. <laughs> it's it's very disturbing. And when you're talking about generation, you know, generational stuff. So I grew up on the Wonder Years and I loved that. And I loved Kevin, the character. And then to see that same actor who hasn't really done anything since the Wonder Years, all of a sudden he reappears, you know, on heroin and having sort of a tantrum. So I like to use that because that'll sort of that'll summarize like what you're going to see. It's going to be, you know, drug content, sex content, um, and your favorite teen stars uh, being debaucherous. Debaucherous is a, is a word for sure that I would use to describe this, this film. That that's a, a good word actually. Yeah. So out of all of the movies out there, and I would assume as someone who's gone into production yeah you have a vast film history yes Uh, why out of all of the movies out there do you choose this one well this particular one for two reasons first reason is that you 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 were requesting ones that a lot of people haven't seen that are a favorite movie and this one is a favorite of mine and yeah like whenever i mention it to people nobody seems to have seen it and then i sort of go through that whole thing about the poster art and DVD cover. But also, this was a very important film to me personally when I was in my early 20s. I very much identified with the characters. I I was a very lost in wayward youth, and that really carried into my mid-20s where you know, I, I personally had problems with drugs and confusion with sex and also a a love of music, which plays very heavy into this film as well. And so it really struck a nerve with me personally. I identified with Sean Bateman a lot, the the protagonist, and I identified with, with some of the other characters and situations. And just the confusion about coming of age was how I felt. So I remember playing it a lot at my house, and I lived with roommates, and we did drugs, hard drugs. And it was like a film that would be going on in the background of my house during that time where I lived there. Another thing, I said two reasons, but here's a third. This was one of the films that inspired me to become a filmmaker because of some of the very clever devices um, as far as camera work and uh, scene structure and narrative exposition. So when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about when you find out that the woman who kills herself had been sending Sean Bateman all those love letters and the way you find out that the montage of scenes um, as she is dying, basically, uh, is incredible. And I found it to be incredibly powerful to, to structure uh, scenes in that order with music like that was just mind blowing to me. And of course, the legendary scene where um, Sean Bateman and Shannon Sossaman's character are both walking to class and it's a split screen and the screen joins that that blew my mind in those days when I was in my early 20s um, as just I, I hadn't really seen much to that effect in contemporary film at that time, you know, um, a lot of narrative contemporary film just didn't have those sorts of experimental filmmaking involved with it. It, it, I feel like a lot of films were sort of either one or the other. They were either kind of experimental or they were 
you know, narrative and story driven. And I think that this did a great job of combining those aspects. Yeah. No, and I and both of those devices that you mentioned, I do want to kind of give a deeper look to here in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone listening who has not seen the movie, uh, it follows three college students through, uh, I guess, a couple of months of college life, except for their college life doesn't involve going to any classes, really. There's only one class that they attempt to go to, which is that split screen segment you were talking right. about. There's only one college professor who shows up. Uh, it, it's almost all parties and drugs and well apathy between yeah. these three three characters, uh, and it it follows them through I, I guess a coming of age. Uh, you used that term a couple of times, although I'm not completely sold on the idea that they really grow over the course of the movie, right. which is something I I do want to talk about. So right. that that's kind of a a brief summary of the movie. It is. It is dark. I will say that it is not a comedy. I, I like how you put it. A dark coming of age story, I think, is a very apt description and, and one that, you know, I mean, this comes out in 2002. It's been out for 18 years. Surely mm-hmm. somewhere along the way, they could have come up with a better description of yeah. it. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, it, this this film was also kind of lost to time. I mean, it, it never really got a giant release and a giant viewing. And I guess that's why we're talking about it on this on this podcast, because not that many people saw it. Yeah. Well, and as I said, I was working as a film critic at the time. And yeah, my boss is the one who covered it. So I never really gave it a, a second piece of attention because I was busy with whatever movies I had been assigned. Mm hmm. And and what's funny is I had it in my head that he loved this movie because I specifically remember him talking about that Fred Savage scene that you're talking about. Right. I specifically remember him bringing that up repeatedly throughout the year. And <laughs> once once I watched this, I went back and read his review and he didn't really like it all that much. He kind of had a, a, a similar approach to a lot of the film critics out there who commended the devices that were used to tell the story, but didn't connect with the story itself. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. 18 years later, I read something he wrote and went, oh, I've been wrong for 18 years about his <laughs> response well, to this film. <laughs> that that goes into a little bit about what I, what I think about filmmaking in general, in that I think it's a huge sort of tribute to the film or... or it means a lot of good things that your boss was mentioning that scene throughout the year um, because that just mean that means it was memorable. And I think that that is more difficult to re- to achieve than people give it credit for. And not everything, you know, a lot of things don't necessarily want to make you feel good or or certain things like that. but but just having something be memorable and stick with you, I think is the goal of a lot of filmmakers and artists and uh, of all sorts. And so I think that's a big testament that Fred Savage scene stuck with him enough to remember it. I mean, I, I've seen movies this past year that like I honestly just can't even remember them at all. And I've just seen them recently because they were just so, you know, predictable and and uh, cliche, I guess. And so when somebody's doing something different enough to stand out, that goes a long way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think you're right. Uh, I think uh, I mean, that's how we remember film. A lot of the time you look at, you know, when you watch the Academy Awards, for instance, they yeah. they show, you know, a montage and that montage is made up of those moments of film that we remember. Right. And 
I, I mean, I don't see the Fred Savage scene working its no. way into an Oscar <laughs> montage anytime soon, but no. but it's a, it's definitely one of several very memorable moments from this movie. So yeah. I, I, I can I, I agree. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And yeah. And that's a that's sort of yeah larger discussion about what what the purpose is of, of film and, and art in general. And um, I think and this has come up a lot with the, the recent release of Uncut Gems, which I love. It's my my favorite movie I've seen this year. But a lot of people it made feel very anxious and they really didn't like it and they didn't like the experience of feeling anxious in the theater for so long. And I think that, again, that's sort of a testament to the power of that movie is that it was a powerful enough film to make people feel so strongly that it, you know, it achieved its goals. I didn't feel anxious with it, but um, it's... I I saw the trailer for that movie and my first thought was, when did Adam Sandler become John Turturro? Because that's that's who I thought I was watching for the first like 30 seconds. He does look a lot like him in that, yeah. But I've heard so much praise for it. It's high on my list to see. And I've not yeah. heard any negative response to it so far. Almost everybody I know that has seen it has really praised it. So Yeah, I think I think most people do. But there has been a lot of uh, upset viewers, uh, for sure. Um, it's an intense, gotcha. yeah, it's an intense film. I won't. I won't give any more anything else away if you haven't seen it. <laughs> no, I haven't, but I want to. All right. Critical reviews for Rules of Attraction. It sits at 43% at Rotten Tomatoes with Ooh. a 71% audience score, huh. uh, but, which I find interesting because it's 50% at Metacritic. So you almost have that going on at Rotten Tomatoes where the critics are coming down on the lower half, but the audience is making up more positivity for that. So yeah, it, it's kind of a 50-50 movie. Uh, Roger Ebert did get to review it. He provides our negative review, although it's not incredibly negative. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote, Avery weaves his stories with zest and wicked energy and finds a visual style that matches the emotional fragmentation. I have no complaints about the acting and especially liked the way Sossaman kept a kind of impertinent distance from some of the excesses. But by the end, I felt a sad indifference. These characters are not from life and do not form into a useful fiction. Their excesses of sex and substance abuse are physically unwise, financially unlikely, and emotionally impossible. I do not censor their behavior, but lament the movie's fascination with it. They do not say, and perhaps do not think, anything interesting. The other two Brett Easton Ellis movies offered characters who were considerably more intriguing. We had questions about them. They aroused our curiosity. The inhabitants of the rules of attraction are superficial and transparent. We know people like that and hope they will get better. On the flip side, Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly provides our pause review, and he said, Avery, like Ellis, has a taste for decadence that can't be faked. Fleshing out the author's groovy porno vision of the real world, he has caught the suicide swagger of college kids who connect by turning themselves into emotional whores who act as if connection isn't possible. The Rules of Attraction is the kind of Gen X stream, straight meets gay, boy meets girl bash that the artless show-off Greg Araki has been trying to bring off for years. It's a party-hardy teen flick that scalds like acid. The cast is a pitch-perfect assemblage of pretty young things, but James Vanderbeek, as a slit-eyed dorm stud, proves that he can be an actor of cruel force. Very interesting. I do have a third bit here that I want to read, but I want to I want to get your responses to those first. You know... The the first one that you read, was that Ebert? The first one that yes. you read? Yes, that was Ebert. I, I completely hear what he's saying, but it's I feel like the things that Ebert 
did not like about the movie were the exact things that I liked about the movie. And there's something about the kind of lack of morality and lack of connection that comes along with drug use and with overindulgence and sex and all that kind of thing. And so, yes, it's there. There's sort of a, a rule, uh, a word I haven't mentioned yet uh, to describe it, but is definitely apt for this is nihilism. Cause this movie is very nihilistic. The characters are nihilists. And um, the morality that exists in this universe, and this is the Bretty Stanellis universe in general, um, there's not much morality. It's disconnected people that engage in sex, drugs, and other kinds of um, self-gratifying behaviors without much regard or concern for other people. So for for listeners who may not be familiar with Bret Easton Ellis, he's also behind American Psycho and what else? Well, Less Than Zero was his first breakthrough novel. It, it was made into a movie, but that movie is terrible. The The novel is disturbing um, as well. You know, the American Psycho film was wonderful. It's a great film. And it brought sort of a comedy to the Patrick Bateman character that didn't necessarily exist in in the book. So the book is a lot more disturbing. And so is the book of Lesson Zero. And so is the book of Rules of Attraction. I read the book for Rules of Attraction, and I greatly prefer the film version. There's mm-hmm. something so wonderful and cinematic about it. But to, to dive into a world inhabited by these characters that don't care about anybody or anything is disturbing. It feels disturbing. And it even feels disturbing for me. But I I can understand it because I feel like, yeah, on a personal level, I was sort of that way when when I was that age. And so, you know, I've I've come to I've fostered my empathy and and learned to, you know, appreciate and and have compassion and all these things since and becoming an adult. But I I was, you know, as a lost youth, you know, I, I think that it it very much, very much fits, and I think that what Roger Ebert is noticing this, and he does, he does not like it. He did not like that. Um, whereas I think it's a reality of the world that there are people who have this kind of lack of emotion, and um, this is their story essentially. Well, and that ties perfectly into the third bit that I wanted to read, which was a rebuttal written by Roger Avery who wrote, The Rules of Attraction isn't about the deeply sensitive types. It isn't about the Richard Dreyfuss character from American Graffiti. This is about those other people, the amoral ones, the folks that justify it as being an experience, the folks that bang through college as a late-day class into an all-night party day after day after day, folks that seemingly celebrate each and every day as though it were the last, the ones that go wild for the first time in their lives. The Rules of Attraction is about three such characters. All three characters are transformed by their experiences. Some learn, some merely evolve from it. So I guess, and it makes sense since it's his movie, but I guess he sees those type of characters as well. Right. And they are very much, and I know that Roger Avery was a Brad Easton Ellis fan before he made this movie. He wanted to make it. He had read the book. And I believe this came out after, this did come out after American Psycho. So, you know, Brad Easton Ellis was on a hot streak, but, and Roger Avery, he, he knew about this and wanted to make it. I mean, they're in this Brad Easton Ellis universe. So yes, Sean Bateman, the, the protagonist of 
Rules of Attraction is Patrick Bateman's brother uh, from American Psycho, who is played by um, Christian Bale. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, which they had apparently talked with Bale about putting in a cameo in this movie. Yeah. He he. There is a there is a Patrick Bateman cameo in the film, but we don't see Christian Bale. He's on the other end of a phone. So Sean uh, calls him, or Patrick calls Sean. I can't remember which which one, but they have a phone call. So uh, Patrick ba- Bateman from American Psycho does make a cameo appearance, and those characters are also tied to other characters that are in uh, Less Than Zero, Brett Easton Ellis's first novel, which is very similar to Rules of Attraction. But it takes place in Los Angeles, and it uh, follows a group of 18-year-olds, basically, as they just finish high school, and they're about to leave to college. And they are very nihilistic and um, amoral, and it's a disturbing book. But when it came out, it made a big splash. And Brett Easton Ellis, as an author, is incredibly controversial. He's very hated in a lot of circles, and he's very loved in other circles, um, but and he's also sort of as a person, he's kind of a, an agent provocateur. Kind of, he's a he's a provocateur. He likes to stir stuff up, and he does this a lot on Twitter. And he's got a podcast and his new book. So he's a very divisive sort of character. He's a love him or hate him, which is kind of how you see this uh, this fifty percent Metacritic score. I mean, that's probably what critics think about Brady Sinellis too. Like very, yeah, love or hate, and. <laughs> But but I'm personally artistically drawn to things that are very much a love it or hate it kind of thing. And I, I do like to watch films that have those medium range scores because I feel like anything that's really pushing the boundaries is going to upset people um, and is going to upset people who uh, enjoy that art form. Like one of my favorite films from the last 10 years is the comedy starring Tim Heidecker that had a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes or something like people just, it it was hard and it, and it, it had similar themes to this film too. It was sort of about this aging hipster who was emotionally disconnected and kind of an asshole and was going around Brooklyn and he was, it was, it was a pathetic character really, but um, I thought it was a very well-made film and a very powerful film. I don't know that one, so I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's interesting because you keep using the word uh, nihilism, or I say nihilism, but both are yeah. correct pronunciations. And I almost, I, I, you're not the first person I've read or or heard to to use that term to describe these three characters, and yet I, I have trouble accepting that idea because I almost feel like they're they're so disaffected that yeah. nihilism would take effort that they're not willing to put forth. Yes. So I don't believe that they themselves are nihilists like in the philosophical um, point of view, like the like the characters in Big Lebowski. I think that they're nihilists in the sense of that they just really don't care about anything or anybody but themselves. I, I guess those are those are different things like the there, there are philosophical nihilists that aren't necessarily actually nihilists because they, you know, have some human empathy and compassion for other people. But then there are actually almost like sociopaths is another word for it, uh, <laughs> which these characters kind of are. I mean, they're not murderous like Patrick Bateman was, like the brother of this character, but they're they kind of are 
sociopaths. Like they, they have such a disregard for their fellow people. And I'm not extolling that as a virtue or anything. I mean, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I deeply care about people and I think empathy is the most important human quality, but I also do recognize that this exists. And especially when you're talking about addiction and whatnot. It turns people, there are things that can lessen people's sense of empathy and connection with other people, which is very um, absent from this film. And and that was one of the things that Roger Ebert kind of um, touched on too. I think he he mentioned sort of the characters are disconnected and, and disjointed yeah. from each other. And that's very true. And I feel like that was sort of part of the point of this movie. They're so wrapped up in themselves, they're almost narcissists, right? Yes, um, yes. They're so wrapped up in themselves that they can't really ha- experience love. They can't experience love for... So there's this romance thing, and there's an obsession thing, a romantic obsession going on. Or there's several romantic obsessions throughout the film. That's a, a, yeah, a theme yes. I just realized. But none of it's real love because they don't... actually care about the other people they just want to possess the other people or or you know there's a lust part they want to have sex with them or they just are infatuated with them but actual love involves caring and empathy and connection and intimacy and stuff and there's none none of that here no no in fact i think my favorite line from the movie illustrates that which is laura walks in on sean and her roommate having yeah. just had sex and his response is I only did it with her because I'm in love with you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it's like how wrong yeah. can you be yeah. to say that? And yet I guess he doesn't even see that. Yes. And that is the, that's a perfect representation of kind of the thesis of the film is like how lost these characters really are. And again, that's another thing that Roger Ebert seemed to have hated about it because he doesn't, maybe didn't want to experience characters that are lost or, or he wants to experience, you know, characters that become found. But that's, it's a great line. And it's obviously very intentionally put in there to really demonstrate how disconnected these characters are from love and from actual caring because nobody who actually, you know, had empathy towards somebody that they were in love with, which that character, he was in love with Shannon Sassamon's character. You know, he really desired her, but he said that because he has no clue as to what, um, was he really in love with her though? Like, like as you, you pointed out, it's not really love. It's more obsession. Yeah, and he's obsessed I think with more her. because he thought she was the one writing the little purple notes that he even opened his mind to her. Because I yes. think if those notes, if he hadn't made that connection that she possibly was the one building the notes, I don't think he would have given her the time of day. Well, they had this interesting, and, and this is one of the, I think, threads of the film that keep it going, even though it ends up in a sort of um, not the happiest place. But they do have a genuine spark in that whole scene where they meet at the classroom. And, but I, I do think oh, that's that true. Being, that's true. being in love is closer to an obsession or closer to it being in love and actually loving, I think are kind of different things. Although that's a, you know, that's a larger philosophical issue, but you know, they do have this spark in, 
you're watching them as a viewer and you're hoping that they actualize this spark. Like they're both kind of messed up people, but they seem to have a connection with each other and you're hoping that they can make this work, or at least I was. And I think that that would be a normal human thing to want it to kind of work. But they, especially Sean's character is so, is so out of it that he has no capacity for that. And and Shannon Sossaman's character is a little more of a sympathetic character. Uh, and yes. she, she she was great in this film, by the way. I think this was her best acting role. She was wonderful in it. But, you know, she she's a little more uh, well-adjusted, I would say, than Sean's character, who just can't find love at his age, basically. Let me, let me ask you one more question, and then I, I want to move into parts of the story. Do you feel like you connected with these characters... Well, I guess, first of all, do you feel like you connected with these characters? At the time um, when I was in my early 20s and I was watching this, yes, I did connect with these characters. Do you think it was because of your age or do you think it was because of drug use? I think it was largely because of drug use and my own personal um, problems with, yeah, with addiction and partying, my just general disposition and all the things that that caused. So I I don't necessarily think that every person in their early 20s will connect with this. Um, But for people who are in their early 20s or teens or mid 20s or later in life who are kind of lost, which is the way that I felt when I was that age, like I, I engaged in those kind of behaviors, but it didn't give me any sense of clarity about life. And it certainly hindered my connections with other people and did not you know, help that. And I, I had a hard time connecting with people. So it, it resonated with me. Like I could see okay. their struggle in connection and intimacy and whatnot in it. And I could identify, I could identify with, with that struggle. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that yeah. actually help helps me a lot because I didn't connect with them, but I'm in my mid forties yeah. watching this movie for, for the first time. And, and one of the notes that I made about halfway through the movie was uh, these are all miserable people. Why should I like any of them? And, yeah. and, and maybe I'm like Ebert in that I want a character that I can rally behind. And right. I, I, I've just I've recognized in myself that I tend not to like movies that don't have a protagonist that I can get behind. Like ah. I, I love Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Because right. I I feel like at the end of the movie, Jules is genuinely trying to become a better person. And I can yes. get behind that. I yeah. don't like Robert Rodriguez's Sin City because I don't think there's a redeemable character in the bunch. I yeah. appreciate it for the style. I appreciate it for the art- art- artistry he put into it. But I don't like the movie because I can't relate with a character. And I felt very similar with this movie. Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. And you know, for me, like you mentioned the word uh, miserable and Robert Ebert mentioned that word. And that's the way that I felt in those days of my life. Personally, I was pretty much miserable all the time. And so that was another thing that I just identified with where I was like, oh, I'm you know, miserable and depressed. And um, here's a movie about people who are miserable and depressed and lost. And, you know, it, it spoke to me sort of. In, Did it in help the, you? I think it helped me. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I think it did, and and this is why, um, especially you know, with it inspired me and made me know that I guess 
that my, the way that I was feeling, even though it didn't necessarily, you know, I, I went to therapy for years and cleaned myself up and, you know, learned how to be a good person, you know, for years, it didn't like change me overnight, but it was inspirational to see that there was art that, you know, can touch upon these things and can speak to me in that level. And it also, I think by, as I mentioned before, being one of the films that kind of inspired me to be a filmmaker, um, it, it gave me, you know, a small sense of purpose and excitement. And that's, that's help, I guess, to a large, to a large degree. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. That that actually really helps me see it from a different vantage point. I don't know that it increases my appreciation of it, but it, it, it definitely helps. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that that's, you know, they say that art that is dark can be very calming for people who have who have sort of darker emotions so like listening to metal for example which i do sometimes is um although less so nowadays i i liked metal more when i was younger but when your neck could take the head banging <laughs> when my neck could take the head banging and and my ears could could take the uh the <laughs> decibel dis- levels yeah the decibel levels and dissonance and abrasiveness of it but you know that if I was in a bad mood, listening to some, you know, heavy, dark, aggressive music would help me sort of feel in a better mood. And I think the same goes for, you know, films and every, every sort of art. And um, yeah, and I, I think that that's a big part of the reason why, you know, the, obviously there are sensibility levels based on sort of artistic canons and um understanding the medium of film and who's contributing to it and who's not. But then there's also films that people connect with for, for different reasons and can identify with for, for different reasons. And, um, and I think that there are certain types of characters and there are certain types of human attributes that just don't get much coverage in film and popular media. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is one of them. I mean, yeah, you haven't seen Uncut Gems yet, but there, you'll see some in, in that film. And um, yeah, so I, I I find it refreshing when the I love I love an antihero. I love a main character, a protagonist that is not a good person that that they are struggling themselves and they're not necessarily likable. And I, I find that interesting because that's the way that people kind of are, you know, we all have our Mm -hmm. own issues and struggles and we're not all incredibly likable, but then putting those people and seeing them go through their day and a lot of them, I mean, and and that could be covered in different ways. Like, cause some of them uh, can be done comically. And like, if you look at Curb Your Enthusiasm and Larry David, which is, you know, my favorite comedy show of all times, you know, he's an incredibly and that's a character, right? He's not that in real life, um, the right, Larry right. of the show, but he he's an asshole, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. I was going to say he's a miserable person. You're, you're he's a miserable the, the asshole. Right there. It's also very uh, nihilistic as well. That show. I mean, every single episode is is has this basis that there is another person who is incredibly annoying to the protagonist, Larry David, who is also incredibly annoying, but he does it in a way that's very funny. Um, and that's very entertaining and in ways that we can sort of identify with him because he makes the characters in his show 
um, all the all the secondary and tertiary characters very annoying people. So you can see where he's coming from when he's annoyed by them. But it's also when you think about it, um, and Seinfeld as well, kind of dark because it oh, yeah. kind of operates under this view that people are just really annoying and uh, <laughs> you know and terrible, and they should be avoided, and you should try to trick them at every uh, corner. And yeah, I I love Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm not doubting that, but when you really kind of break it down, you see some of those same elements that you see in this film, although. This is not a comedy and it's definitely no. not as uh, spelled out like, you know, it's it's like throwing a lot of these characters in this murky realm where nobody really the conflict never really resolves. And there's never even yeah the conflict so subtle, you know, whereas like in Curb and Seinfeld, they spell it out a lot. And you, you know, and, and that's why it's funny. Yeah. Wow. We are talking a lot and haven't even really gotten to the movie. So yeah. let, me dig in, yeah. let me dig into a couple of things <laughs> sure. here because part of the, part of the issue I had with the movie was also not just the characters, but the content um, yeah. because in our, our first 10 minutes, when we first meet our characters, we have a rape and we have a bout of homophobia. Yeah. And that's, that's hard to stomach right off the bat in a film. It sure is. Yeah. And that definitely creates that atmosphere of uh, this is not a good place. Um, yeah, the 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 rape is disturbing, and yeah. the homophobia. You know, Brady Stanellis is a gay who wrote who wrote the book that this is based on, and so you know, I think that that was probably partially autobiographical for him, and he you know he does sort of talk about that kind of thing a lot, and that's a big part that features heavy into this story the homophobia um aspect of um, well because because those almost become defining traits for these characters you 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 made the comment that laura uh shannon's character is probably the most sympathetic out of the three and part of that is because the first scene we see her in ends with her being raped right it's not a violent act but it is a very disturbing act yes Uh, the first scene that we really get of paul uh, he's being beaten on for being gay and yes. that kind of comes to define him. And then the first scene we see of Sean, he identifies himself as an emotional vampire yeah. and through his own narration switches his pronouns. He's, he, he, he defines himself as an emotional vampire using I, but then when he gets to the point in that scene where he's having sex, he's saying he. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about that part, but when when you're talking about the the rape and you know obviously it's a touchy subject but what i do think is interesting is that it, it was like a you know sort of campus drinking date rape thing which is a an actual you know it's a real issue and it's a real um struggle and it has been for a long time and you know it has been brought up in in culture and in the news and in our cultural conversation a lot in the last five years or so. But before then, I don't know that many people were, were drawing attention to, to that issue and how prevalent it is. And it's a, it's a prevalent social problem in our society on college campuses and fraternities and college parties. And that's what I think that this film was trying to say with that scene. And also the homophobic beating scene was 
that there's almost like a Lord of the Flies, just dark humanity element in this, in that colleges that are, you know, oh, but also, yeah, in the opening scene, it's kind of the opposite. Like they're showing that Cure song is playing and the, you know, the green, the grass looks green and there's all these good looking people out on the quad of the university of that, you know, it's basically an Ivy League school or, or you know, a top college. And so it, it's sort of, sort of showing that these things look great on the surface and look very pleasant, but buried under it is some very dark and disturbing things. And, and we've seen, yeah, recently, and especially with all the coverage of that skiing, that that's absolutely true, you know? And oh, so yeah. it, it's not pleasant necessarily, and it's not necessarily something that we want to see for, for, you know, entertainment purposes, but it's also something that I think should, you know, make, make people think and, uh, in, in a way. Yeah. Well, while I don't, really enjoy the content that's shared in those three sequences. I love the device he uses to get us our three major characters. He shows us Laura's scene and then has time rewind to show us Paul's scene and then time rewinds again to show us Sean's scene. And that that rewinding device is really clever, especially because right after the first one, Paul's first line is, sometimes I think my life lacks forward momentum. Which is kind of funny, given that the audience just rewounded, you know, just just went back in time to get to that point. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of like little clever Easter eggs like that throughout the film. And I remember this film is one of those where when you watch it again, it's, it's one of those where you notice different things. And there's very few films that exist like that. But it's so fun when that does exist, when when there is like... Yeah, little things like you just pointed out because I don't even think that I noticed that before. But it yeah. there's there's a lot of sort of clever clever things and and um kind of hidden hidden throughout that you can discover. Some of the actors' appearances alone just blew my mind. That you have Paul Williams show up as a completely inept doctor at the uh, yeah. at the clinic. You have Eric Stoltz as the college professor. I mean, it's like where the hell yes. did these guys come from? Yeah. You know, especially for a movie as as you know, we're saying most people have not seen. It's kind of interesting to see these higher profile artists showing up in it. Yeah, well, Eric Stoltz was was also in Roger Avery's first film Killing Zoe, um which I I've got to be honest, I didn't really like Killing Zoe and I didn't really like any of his other films although he was a co-writer on Pulp Fiction, Roger Avery was, but yes. he, the his, uh, cr- the the butch scene or the the watch scene, was that am I reading did I read that yeah. correctly? Yeah. Him and uh, Quentin Tarantino were good friends from, they worked at that video store together and they wrote Pulp Fiction together. There's a legal dispute about um, his writing credit on Pulp Fiction, but he, Roger Avery is very adamant and swears up and down that, you know, he co-wrote the film, but there was some, yeah, some legal stuff with, so he wasn't credited as writer. He was credited as a story by or something. I can't, I can't remember, but um, he did have a large hand in it for sure. And um, there's a lot of crossover between Killing Zoe and Pulp Fiction. Um, Some of the characters, Zed and so on and so forth. And uh, Eric Stoltz was in Killing Zoe and they, they bonded over that. So we talked about the rewinding, the split screen you mentioned earlier, uh, the, probably my favorite sequence of the movie 
the screen splits and half of it is showing James Vanderbeek's Sean and the other part is showing uh, Shannon Shoshannon's uh, Laura as they are getting up and going to a Saturday class. And it really shows the difference between the two characters, but then it culminates in them meeting face to face, which is yes. a really weird feeling because they're both looking at you. Yes. Yes, it it was uh, an immaculately planned out and well thought out scene. And the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of that scene as well is that Donovan song, Yellow is the Color, that is playing. And the the music in this film is so important and it really sets the tone there. And I the soundtrack of this movie is one of my favorites of all time. I mean, it ha- yeah, it has... Donovan, Tom and Andy, The Cure, also The Rapture, and a lot of a lot of great musicians. And I feel like it's really lacking. Uh, it's it's like one out of every hundred or two hundred films actually has a, a soundtrack that music lovers will will love. And I'm kind of a music nerd and a music lover. And um, and the the use of that Donovan song there. Uh, which which it goes on for about that scene is what like two and a half minutes without dialogue, and oh, yeah, it's easily. it's it's really only you know most of the scene is only people walking. So I mean you have the waking up routine which was fun and Sean Bateman wiping his ass which was <laughs> fun, because but just you don't you know that's something that you don't see. But most of it's just people walking, and to keep a scene of just two people walking interesting is a very difficult you know thing to pull off. But but even though you know that they're sort of going to meet, but that the song fit so perfectly, and it, it was such the right tone, and it was also you know a happy song and a happy tone, kind of for the first time. It, since since the intro credits of the movie, like we'd been in this dark space with this kind of dis, you know darker, harsher songs, and then you know it's this early morning and the sun is out and they have smiles. Shannon saw someone smiling, and Sean Bateman seems to be in a good mood, and um, it, it really offered a lot of contrast to what we had been seeing to that point, and then of course what we see afterwards. Yeah, well, and. I was paying specific attention to like, I mean, I was looking at all of it. So I was looking at characters in the background and as they're walking around, I mean, it definitely kept my attention, but because of me looking in the background of a lot of the scenes, I caught the answer to who was writing the the letters early on in the film. Really? Interesting. Really? How, uh, so you started to notice her, how did, where did you start to notice her? It was one of the first letters he comes out of the building that the mailroom is in, and I noticed her in the background, and as he walks past her, she's turning, and I mean, her eyes are on him, and as he's walking away, she starts walking after him, and I I did also notice her at the... um, I don't remember which party it was. They each had they had such weird names: the dress to get screwed party yeah. and the, the end the, of the end world, of the world party. party and the party before the end of the world party. But the yeah. the one with the wicker man, um, I did see her I think in that, that was scene. The end of the world party. No, the end of the world party is the one that opens and closes the film. Oh, okay. But so I I, I didn't catch all the references. So when she's finally revealed. As someone who had noticed her in the background, I kind of wish they hadn't overtly shown her in all those scenes, but there were also bits where I hadn't caught her. So I was kind of glad that they did. 
I, yeah. I'm just I'm not a big fan of spelling everything out for the audience sometimes, but maybe in this case it was needed. You know, it, it's interesting that you say that, and I think a lot of that that you notice that a lot of that might have to do with, you know, we're older, we're in our forties now and we're just smarter people. <laughs> Cause I, you know, <laughs> I don't I think, think go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I was, you know, I, I, I haven't seen this film in years and I don't know how well it would still hold up to me nowadays, but I do know that there was a lot of films that I was really into and they were really mind blowing to me when they came out. And I was in my early twenties, late teens that nowadays just don't hold. I see them and I'm like, Oh my gosh, so corny. Like matrix is one, which legendary film, right? Wonderful, legendary, you know, groundbreaking film. But I tried to watch it recently and I'm just like, wow, it, it just felt very corny. And same with fight club is one where I remember when I first saw it, it felt so powerful at that time when I was 20 or whatever I was 21. And now I think if I were to watch it now, it would just feel kind of a lot more cliche and predictable. But uh, I I think that also, I wonder if I had seen this film for the first time now as a 41 year old, if it would have the same effect on me at all. Well, and that's why I was asking you so many questions about your first time seeing it and where you were, because again, I'm in my mid forties and this is my first time seeing it. And I definitely didn't have the connection that you had with it. And so I think that that context is important to get uh, as to what your experience was going into it. Yeah. I was in a house that I lived in with like two other guys and we worked at a bar and we would do cocaine through the night. And it was a bad, it was a bad scene back then. And we just, there was always, it was one of those houses, there was always people coming and going and we were up all night. And, you know, so my life just felt dark in those days. And that's why I think largely this film connected to me with me, but my life nowadays is not dark and I don't do hard drugs and I don't you know, <laughs> stay up all night and, and do all those things. And I, I wonder if it would be as profound to me nowadays as it was then, like it felt profound, right. it felt important, but yeah, some, so, so did matrix and so did fight club. And I, I'm not sure. And I think that there's certain things that really touch on somebody of that age, like hits those, notes of what they believe about, you know, that whole like society is bullshit, you know, everything is bullshit sort of feelings that I I felt in those age and definitely Fight Club and Matrix hit on that feeling hard. Like both of them are, that's the thesis of those films is like society is fake and society is bullshit and, you know, you, you are better than it. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that this shows that a lot too, although the particular society in this film is college society and not necessarily society as a whole. It's just like university society, but it's sort of saying that it's like painting it as a, a very dark place, like with those opening scenes you were talking about and just the way that people behave and whatnot. So, and you know, you see that in, there is a lot of that in fight club too. Now that I think about it, I mean, remember that whole sequence where he's on the airplane and talking about how, you know, car crashes are only, they only pay, they only fix the problem of the car if enough people die and that, you know, and it, and it costs them more money not to fix it. And, you know, which that has a very like nihilistic, um, I'm saying nihilistic now that you mentioned. I noticed that you changed that. Yeah. I wasn't trying to correct your pronunciation because both are valid. I say, (laughs) say, but yeah, but, um, that has a very nihilistic sort of point of, 
point of view as well in that even though the characters themselves are a lot different but um it it appeals to somebody of that age where you're figuring out life and you your own experiences with life a lot of times are mine were where it's that society is oppressive right outside of everything is trying to if everything feels kind of oppressive um when you're younger because you you're just starting to learn about the rules of things and those rules don't necessarily um vibe with what you want reality to be and and the rules of of reality and the rules of attraction the film yeah I was I was wondering if you were going to work the title in. Good job there. I had to had to do it. <laughs> All right, I, we're we're uh, we've talked for an hour already, but I've got oh, one more thing I definitely sure. want to make sure we talk about before we move to the the end credits here, and, and that's the ending of the movie. So yes. uh, spoilers for those who are listening and haven't seen the film. So we we rejoin Sean at the party with his Jack and his purple letters. And we know from the beginning of the movie that he is getting ready to go upstairs and have sex with the girl. And then he doesn't. Instead, Mm -hmm. he puts stuff down and he walks out the door, which almost means he can change his destiny. I I assume that Lauren still gets raped and Ian Summerhalder is holding his side when he and when when Paul and Laura are walking away from the building. So I assume he still got beat up. And yes. th- and then we see Sean drive off on his bike and we get in the end, all I could think of was end credits. And then it cuts and then it cuts to end credits. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, very interesting ending. So what do you, what do you make of that? Why is it that Sean can change his destiny, which frankly was the least offensive of the three characters in the opening, but yeah. the other characters can't? You know, it it never. It's interesting that you saw it that way because I it never actually dawned on me that he's changing his destiny. I guess I I'd missed that um, somehow. But now that you mention it, it's true. But what I got from it was the feeling I got from it was that he gets on his motorcycle and he's driving away from the school, and essentially that he is leaving. That what it conjured in my mind is that this person as well as the other characters, but he's the, he's the, he's the main character of the film. And so it, it makes sense that they would be focused on him. will be gone from these college days and will go out into the real world at some point and will grow up and will live happily ever after. I, I thought that that was sort of the point of it was that we all, um, escape that period of our life and that's what he was doing and that was sort of the happy ending even though it wasn't expressly happy and obviously these horrible things are going to happen um to the characters but i think it also well and and if you cut off in mid-sentence is it really an ending (laughs) right right and it yes it 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 definitely does leave it hanging, which was kind of strange. But I, I think it put into context and perspective that for all the characters, this horrible sort of dystopian college that they live in is a place in time that they will all leave. And they, they will all leave to to find their their destiny somewhere out in the world. And which, yeah, which, which everybody, no matter what your experience is with school, um, that was sort of the thing. So it was not, instead of resolving anything that happened within the school, it was just sort of, I think, 
a kind of a thesis of like this is the school is a terrible place and the happy ending is getting <laughs> getting the heck out of it. Right, right. All right, well, let's move to the uh, end credits here. We've got The Algorithm Says. Uh, this is various movies that algorithms think you will like because you liked this one. This is kind of a mm-hmm. lightning round. You give your response to whether you liked the movie, you didn't like the movie, you don't see how it's connected to um, okay. the rules of attraction, you know, that kind of thing. So, okay. Killing Zoe. I didn't like it. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I didn't connect with it. First of all, Pulp Fiction was such a much, so much a better film, and it's it's very related to Pulp Fiction. Um, it's the same director, Roger Avery, and yeah, I don't, I don't like his other films. I just loved this one. Uh, Wrist Cutters, a love story. Ugh, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like <laughs> that film that much. I, I do love the author who wrote the book. The film is based on Edgar Carrot, another case of like a book based on movie, but the film itself. Didn't care. Didn't care for it. I, I found it to be kind of cheesy and hokey, and and the acting to be a little. Uh, it was sort of going for a cutesy kind of twee feel that I just didn't think landed in 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 a nice way, like a um, Wes Anderson way, where he does that gotcha. twee cutesy nice. Uh, yeah, that one not. All right, Ghost World. Yes, loved it. Yes, of course, that's a phenomenal film. Uh, Wonderland. Oh, was that about the Wonderland murders, the John Holmes um, yep. murders? Yeah, I seem to remember it not being that great of a mo- of a film. Like the story is very intriguing, but again, Boogie Nights did that story so much better. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's you know, it's very related. Gotcha. And finally, Hard Candy. Oh gosh, wow! I, I didn't like it. Hard Candy. I saw it. I saw it at the same time I saw Risk Cutters. Actually, funny enough, I didn't think it was that great. It was um, a. Cle- it had some like cleverness to it, um, worth watching. But as far as filmmaking and film, it was more like filmmaking for entertainment purposes. Like it was a clever little story with a clever twist, but not nothing that was like pushing the the medium forward at all or, or really sticks with you. As a matter of fact, I can't remember really a a single scene of that movie. I I know I saw it and I remember what it's about, but I I seem to remember something with handcuffs. (laughs) All right. And we always end with the pop quiz Four questions that are related to the movie. Are you ready? Okay. Oh yeah. (laughs) All right. Number one, allegedly the end of the world party that forms the frame for the overall movie was filmed on what notorious date? A January September eleventh. Yeah, September eleventh. That's yeah. Yeah. Which I find hard to believe that they would continue filming, but I guess the show must go on. So there is an. I just actually listened to an interview conversation between him, uh, Roger Avery, and Brad Easton Ellis, and they were talking about that. And you know, on a feature film set, it it is uh, it's very expensive, and they they talked about shutting it down, and there was debate about it. But it, it's just like, well, yeah, the show must go on, kind of, yeah. All right, number two. What actor was originally cast as Sean with the role recast with James Vanderbeek after Roger Avery decided the first actor was playing it too much like the book? A. Oh. James Franco. B. Martin Starr. C. Michael Sarah. Or D. Will Wheaton. I, I, I would guess James Franco. You'd guess right. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I threw Will Wheaton's name in there because apparently yeah. he had talked to Roger uh, to Roger Avery about appearing in the movie, but it just never came to fruition. But yeah, James Franco was originally was fully cast as Sean and then recast a little later. 
Interesting. He would have brought something interesting to that role. I'm not a huge Franco fan, but he he would have brought something different to that role for sure. Yeah, it would have been different. I don't know that it would have been better, but it would have been different. (laughs) Yeah. All right, number three, from a technical standpoint, The Rules of Attraction is notable for being the first film to use what editing software? A, Avid's Media Composer, B, Apple's Final Cut Pro, C, Vegas Pro, or D, Corel Video Studio Pro? Given that it was 2001, Final Cut Pro seems like it would make sense, but I don't know. Nope, that's absolutely right. Final Cut Pro. It was the first movie to use basically over-the-counter software for editing purposes. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Finally, the DVD release was supposed to include a commentary by author Brett Easton Ellis, who is by his own admission, up late the night before recording it doing drugs. Instead of releasing his incoherent ramblings, Avery came up with the idea of recording a commentary track by who? A, Kip Pardue in character as Victor, B, Roger Ebert, C, Mark Maron, or D, Carrot Top? Uh, Kip Pardue in character as Victor, I believe. I'm really surprised you don't know this one. No, they recorded a commentary track with Carrot Top, who had never seen the movie before. (laughs) Oh my God. He's commenting on a movie he's never seen before, and uh, Roger Avery decided that including it was some sort of artistic commentary on audiences. You know, I did watch the commentary on that. Like, I feel like a lot of times, and I I very much miss uh, DVD director's commentary. I miss it so much. I used to love to do that, but... Again, I guess I just forgot that it was Carrot Top. And when you read the things just now, I was like, oh, that sounds ridiculous. Like, what? A, like there's no way it would be Carrot Top. But uh, that's that's great. I w- I, I'm going to try to find that somewhere. Yeah. All right, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Yeah, I'd love to promote my podcast. It is also dark. Um, it is a scripted fictional science fiction podcast called Friends of the Friend. It's on all the podcast platforms. It's about a techno-spiritual cult gone awry and our quest to solve some murders related to them. Awesome. Yeah, I I looked over. I didn't get a chance to listen to an episode. I'm sure by the time this one goes live, I will have, and I'll talk about it in the intro. But I, um, I, I, it sounded really intriguing. Yeah, please, please give it a listen. It's, there's been great audience response so far. Awesome. All right, man. I really appreciate this. Um, yeah, I, I really so appreciate the perspective that you brought to this because that that helped me see the movie in a very different light. So I appreciate everything you had to say about it. Thanks so much. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Honestly, I will um, ramble about film to anybody who will listen and most people won't listen. So it was really <laughs> fun to talk about it um, in, in this uh, dedicated format and great to talk to you. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, which follows a bounty hunter and his prey on a cross-country trip with planes, trains, automobiles, and unlike the last two weeks' episodes, no rape. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or you can use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I appreciate it if you just help spread the word and help build the community some more. 
And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources, and my recent performance on Scared Shirtless, episode 13. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Sean Preston for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Well, come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.